0: How God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at DavidPorson.org. This is Esther. So we come to the book of Esther, though when we've finished Esther I want to speak about Esther and Daniel because they do belong together. They come from the same place and the same time, they come from the exile and from the people who didn't go back to Jerusalem but stayed in exile for various reasons. Now there are only two books in the whole Bible named after women, Ruth and Esther. And there are only two books in the Bible that never mention God at all, Song of Solomon and Esther. And for this reason, many people have been puzzled as to why Esther is in the Bible at all. It's interesting, it's rather romantic, it makes a good story, but why is it in the Bible? Why do we have to read it? What can we possibly learn from it? Well now, like Ezekiel and Daniel, it came out of this Jewish exile and there are a few books in the Bible set outside the Promised Land. And that's interesting because these tell us how Jews behaved when they were in Gentile society and therefore are good guides for us behaving in non-Christian society. And I always think, for example, that Daniel was like Joseph. They both rose to be prime minister outside their own people. They managed to do it without compromise and so we can too. Now Babylon was defeated by a coalition of the Medes and the Persians, I'm sure you've heard of the laws of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be changed, and they were first ruled by a Mede, Darius, and then by a Persian, Xerxes I, otherwise known as Ahasuerus. Why didn't they have easy names to say? Daniel rose to be Prime Minister and was called Belteshazzar, but Esther Whose Hebrew name is Hadassah, and she has a hospital named after her outside Jerusalem. Have you seen the Chagall windows in Hadassah Hospital? Hadassah, as she was originally called, rose to be queen. But again, she was given a pagan name. Esther is short for Ishtar. And we're back to the name of the gate, the Ishtar Gate, and pagan goddesses' names. But she was given that name, and that's the name by which she's known. It's possible, just possible that Ishtar, which is the word for star, really was the name she was given, but Esther is more like Ishta and uh, I would think it probably is a pagan name. Both Daniel and Esther got into a position where they could help their people officially. It's good when God's people get into a position where they are able to help God's people because of the authority they have in that position. Now we remember that God didn't force the Jews to go back to the promised land, they were free to go and many thousands chose to, but even more chose not to. Now incidentally the book of Esther is probably the best attested book in the Old Testament from outside records because it's quite a late book and there are many other outside records to confirm what we read in the book of Esther, so it's a very well attested book. In fact, In Persopolis, which was the capital of the Persian Empire at one point, they have dug up a stone tablet and the words on it are Mardukah, Prime Minister, which is so near Mordechai that it surely must be the same person. So even Mordecai's name has been found outside. Well now, the story I think you'll have to read yourself, it's a most romantic story. Uh, it really is a heartthrob. In fact, you know, the, the, there's a new version of it, you see. And it's, uh, she was young, she was beautiful and queen of an empire. Only one man knew her secret, a secret that could mean death. <laughs> Boy, that's, that's real romantic stuff, isn't it? That's women's magazine stuff. Barbara Cartland, you aren't in it. And... Uh, It is a very romantic story to read, just let me run through the bones of it to remind you. King of Persia, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, whichever you like to call him, ruled over a kingdom from India to Egypt and he held a conference for 180 days to decide how he was going to deal with the Greeks uh, because he wanted the Greek empire as well and he held this great conference, how are we going to have the Greeks? At the end of the conference they had a bit of a feast and uh, they got drunk and the king said, uh, send for my wife, presumably to come and dance for them. She was quite young and pretty and he wanted her to come and entertain all his generals and she sent a message back, no. (laughs) That begins the whole story. Queen Vashti said, no. And the whole situation arose because that put the king in a really embarrassing situation. And if he didn't deal with his wife, you can guess what all the wives of the generals were going to do. You see, if he couldn't control his household, they were going to be in trouble as well. So something had to be done and I'm afraid he was very cross with her and he told her, you are never to enter my presence again. But he found his bed a bit cold and he was lonely. So somebody suggests to him, why don't you have a beauty queen contest and then take the winner? It's a great idea. So they had a beauty queen contest and somebody entered Hedersi and she was very beautiful and she won. So she became the queen, took Xerxes. That's how it all happened. It's an amazing story it's in the Bible and uh, (laughs) there we are. (laughs) So we can talk about it she was from the tribe of Benjamin, which is amazing considering what we talked about that. And Mordecai was her cousin, but she had been left an orphan, so Mordecai adopted her as his adopted daughter, though she was actually his cousin, and he forbade her to reveal her background to the king. He was so afraid of anti-Semitism. The Jewish community left behind were in a precarious position and so he forbade her to reveal her background. She became the favourite out of all his harem. Now also there was another man who was exalted in the court at that time called Haman and he's the baddie. He's the villain of the story and he was an agagite. Now that probably means nothing to you. But way back in the days of the prophet Samuel Samuel told Saul to go and defeat Agag, remember? And uh, not only to defeat him, but to kill him for his wickedness and Saul wouldn't kill him. And so Samuel the prophet took over and hacked him to pieces before the altar of the Lord. Remember? Agag or Agag, whichever you call him. That set up a hatred between the Agagites and the Jews and Haman had this hatred of the Jews because of that bit of history. Centuries later, but you know they have long memories in the Middle East, very long memories. So here we have a situation. A Jewess who hasn't revealed that she's a Jewess is the queen of the Persian kingdom and Haman Is being exalted to be Prime Minister who hates all Jews. You can see the plot building up, can't you? It's got to explode sooner or later. And finally, Mordecai, so Haman got a bit too big for his boots and insisted on everyone worshipping the emperor. And Mordecai, of course, refused. And immediately, and the Jews refused. Immediately Haman told the king. We have these people living among us and they're different from us, they have their own laws, their own customs, their own religion. They are misfits. We really will have to get rid of them. And he also offered a large bribe to the treasury, some $20 million if the king would agree to annihilate the Jews. And they actually drew lots to decide the day on which all the Jews would be secretly killed. And the word for lot is Pur, P-U-R, and the plural of that, lots, is Purim, P-U-R-I-M. If ever you've heard of the Feast of Purim, that's a celebration of the rescue of the Jews from genocide in Persia. They still have the Feast of Purim. Interesting enough, the lots cast the thirteenth day of the month, for the Holocaust, for the annihilation of the Jewish people. And that's one of the reasons why the 13th day has been regarded with superstition ever since. Interesting how all these fit together. When the Jews heard about it, they mourned, they fasted, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and Mordecai sent a message to Esther, beg the king for mercy. And he says, who knows but what you came to the kingdom for this time you found yourself Queen, you're in a position to help us. And she had a real battle should she reveal that she was Jewish, because her life was at stake too. And then finally she came to the decision, if I perish, I perish. Now the Queen was not allowed into the King's presence unless sent for, yet she boldly walked into his presence and uh, didn't come unstuck. And he said, what do you want? And she asked for a banquet with Haman, and they had the banquet. Haman was so angry with Mordecai, just couldn't stand him, so he finally told his wife, I I hate that man Haman. And she said, well look, build a gallows and hang him on that thirteenth day. And so he built a gallows 23 metres high to hang old Mordecai on the 13th day as the most prominent example, his hated enemy dangling from this huge gallows. So he built the gallows, didn't tell anybody who it was for. And the night before, the king had insomnia. You know, it's a series of the most incredible coincidences. And the king had insomnia. And because he couldn't sleep, he read his old diaries. And he read that Mordecai had saved his life years before and he'd never rewarded him. And so as soon as he woke the next morning, he said, send for that man Mordecai, I must reward him. Well, there'd been an assassination plot actually and Mordecai had told him about them. Well, they had a second banquet and this time Esther pleaded for her people's life and her request was heard. And uh, the king said to Haman, I'm trying to think of a reward to give to someone who really pleases me. What would you suggest? See. Now, Haman thought it must be him and that's when he said, oh, make, make him prime minister. See, king said, good, I'll do that. Send for Mordecai. <laughs> Mordecai was rewarded. The whole thing, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? So Mordecai replaced Haman and when the king found out what was going on, he ordered Haman to hang on his own gallows (laughs) and the Jews were saved. There are more details than that, but uh, in fact, the people who had heard about this day secretly were all ready to kill all the Jews all over the empire. And if this hadn't happened, do you realise there would be no Jewish people left? Because the empire stretched from India to Egypt and had this gone through, Jesus would never have been born. So it does affect us, doesn't it? See? Because it was every Jew throughout the empire who was going to be slaughtered on that day, every Jew, complete genocide. And Esther saved the day. It's no wonder that they celebrate it every year. Now everyone loves a story like this and it is superbly told. As a literary uh, structure, it is superb. I mean, when you write a novel, you should build up to a a point of real tension and then relieve the tension, get everybody living happily ever after and the baddies come to a sticky end. I mean, the whole thing. But the sheer structure, you see, it... It's got this same structure building up to a climax and matching the first half to the second half. It's it's very beautifully put together. Somebody with a real skill of writing put this story together. So you have this build-up of chapters 1 to 5, which I've labelled danger, and the tension gets stronger and stronger, and then it's all relieved in the deliverance of the people and look how it matches. You have a prologue which describes the situation, you have an epilogue right at the end which is the celebration, the great feast, the first feast of Purim. You have the king's first decree that everybody had to worship him and the king's second decree that the Jews must never be touched again. (laughs) You have Haman's exasperation with Mordecai and then you have Mordecai's exaltation over Haman. And the whole thing hinges on one man unable to sleep. That's the drama of the story. I mean, truth is stranger than fiction. You wouldn't get away with this in fiction. (laughs) And in fact, the coincidences come all the way through and that is a key that we've got to look at in a moment. Now I can certainly understand the Jews celebrating such an event. They nearly were totally wiped out. It's the nearest they came to disappearing, and they were saved by one man's insomnia and one girl's courage. And also, there's another sort of theme running through. It begins with a feast, has everybody fasting, and then they're all feasting again. There's such a harmony in this story. It, it is just beautifully put together, and you really ought to read it. But read it in the Living Bible or a modern translation, and you'll be fascinated. It is not a religious ceremony, but it certainly is a thanksgiving day. But why is it in the Bible? Is it just to give us an example of having courage when we find ourselves in a public position? No, there's much more to it than that. Let me uh, just say a word about the spirit of anti-Semitism. Satan is determined to destroy the Jewish people. Because salvation is of the Jews. Satan was behind the slaughter of the boys in Egypt. And Moses was saved by the little basket of bulrushes, remember? But Satan was behind that. And Satan here was trying desperately to destroy the Jews before the king could be born. This was, in a sense, his last major bid before Jesus was born to prevent Jesus being born. begin to see something here? We're not ignorant of his devices. It was the devil who was behind the slaughter of 200 babies in Bethlehem and Jesus just escaped through a dream. And I believe also that the devil is behind abortion. Because that is mostly in Christian countries. The devil is trying to destroy future Christian leaders. Uh, You can make what you like of this insight, but you see, the Jews, we owe everything to the Jews. This Bible was written by 40 different authors over a period of 1400 years in three different languages. Only one of those writers was Gentile, that was Dr. Luke and he got all his material from Jews. Without the Jews you wouldn't have this book. No wonder they are hated more than any other people. There is something demonic about anti-Semitism. It it is worse than any xenophobia relating to other strangers and misfits. There's something demonic behind antisemitism and here we have an anti-Semitism that does go back into history, Samuel hewing Agag in pieces, but that was deserved and it was right and it was God's judgment. I just mention this because so many have tried genocide in relation to Israel. Pharaoh tried it by wiping out all the males, Haman tried it, Herod tried it, Hitler tried it. It keeps popping up in history because salvation is of the Jews. We ought to be very grateful to the Jewish people. Everything we know about God came through them and your Saviour was and is a Jew. But there is another unseen actor in this drama. There is someone behind the scenes. Statistically, there are too many coincidences And when you get a whole lot of coincidences, you have to ask, is this coincidence or is it providence? Is God behind this? And when so much hangs on an apparently minute detail or circumstance, then you really feel you are watching God at work. And I see God at work in this story for the preservation of the people from whom his son would be born. I see it in Mordecai's belief. Mordecai believed firmly that God would preserve the people and he said, Esther, if you won't be God's channel, somebody else will. He didn't use the name God, he said, but if you won't be the person to deliver us, someone else will be raised up to do it. He had incredible faith in God's overruling. I see it in the chance events which all fitted in together, from the fact that Mordecai had saved the king's life years earlier, from the fact that uh, Xerxes had written it in his diary, from the fact that he couldn't sleep and read that diary that night, and that page in his old diary, it's all fitting together. So that even, as somebody has said, if the name of God is not in the book of Esther, his finger certainly is. Now that's quite a statement. Why then is God never mentioned? Well here's the biggest surprise I've got for you. He is, five times. People say to me, Esther is a book in which God isn't mentioned. I say, yes he is. Five times he's mentioned and I want to show you where. He is mentioned in the form of acrostics, the initial letters of either his name or his title. Sometimes it's forward, sometimes it's backwards. And that's not a coincidence either. I've tried to put it into English for you so that you can see it but bear in mind it's in the Hebrew. Now sometimes it's the last letters of a series of words that make another word, but usually it's the first letters. Now the Jews, who loved playing with words, were very fond of acrostics. You'll find them all the way through the Psalms, especially in that very long one, 119. And the description of the ideal wife in Proverbs chapter 31 is another acrostic. In the book of Lamentations, four out of five chapters are an alphabetic acrostic, each line beginning with the next letter of the alphabet. It's a very skilled literary device and it can be used to convey coded or secret messages. Now in the book of Esther, there are five acrostics and the first four follow a remarkable pattern. Chapter 1 verse 20, chapter 5 verse 4 and then verse 13 and chapter 7, verse 7. Now the first two use the first letters of four consecutive words, whereas the second pair use the last letters. Then there's another interesting point. The first acrostic is backwards, the second is forwards, the third is backwards, and the fourth is forwards. Now of course you must realise that these acrostics are actually in the Hebrew text and therefore in the Hebrew language. And the four letters are actually J-H-V-H, the four letters of God's name. That's pronounced Jehovah in English and Yahweh in Hebrew. Now to help you to understand how it works, we've got here an English equivalent version in which we're using the word Lord, L-O-R-D, as a substitute for J-H-V-H, for Jehovah or Yahweh and the translation has had to be twisted a bit to show you how it works. Let's take the first, chapter 1, verse 20. Due respect our ladies shall give to their husbands, both great and small. Due respect our ladies, D-R-O-L. That's the word Lord backwards in the initial letters of the first four words. Now in the next, chapter 5, verse 4, it's forwards. Let our royal dinner... L-O-R-D. Now why is it sometimes backwards and sometimes forwards? Well when it's backwards, the words are being spoken by a Gentile. But when it's forwards, it's a Jew speaking. It's as if the Jews are saying the Gentiles can never say the word right, or it may be that they don't want to put the sacred name on Gentile lips. Now those are the first four, but there's possibly one more in Esther which stands on its own. The letters are slightly different, and that spells I am, only it's backwards again. Now, that's five acrostics in the book of Esther, and there are no others. Now, all this is much too much of a coincidence. The writer has carefully worked it all out and then worked it into the text. It's so subtle that no Gentile would notice it. And it does, there are various explanations, but the one that fits best to my thinking, is very simple and that is that it was written in a time when it was dangerous to mention the Jewish God and therefore presumably written a bit later than the events. You see, at first people would pass the story of Esther on verbally, orally and it would be remembered as a foe tale, but there'd come a time when somebody says, you know, we ought to get this written down because people will celebrate this annually and they will need to hear the the true story of what lies behind this feast, or they might forget it, so let's get it written down. But presumably by that time, anti-Semitism was rearing its head again. And people said, if you're caught with a document about the Jewish God here, you'll be in trouble. How can you write the story of Esther without mentioning God? Well, this is a typical Jewish answer to the problem. It really is. That is just how a Jew would think. We'll get his name in, but we'll do it in such a way that people don't uh, realise. And in fact, God is all the way through. Isn't that interesting? Well, there's something you didn't know. <laughs> and uh, God is mentioned in Esther in a very hidden, subtle way. But to any Jew who reads Esther, you tell a Jew God isn't mentioned in Esther. he said, of course he is. And he'll show you the letters, always there. It's a way of saying God was the hidden actor in this drama. God was behind the scenes. It was really God who was arranging the whole thing to save his people and bring his Messiah to them. Well, may not help you spiritually, but it keeps you awake on a <laughs> Sunday afternoon. <laughs> right. Well let me look at Daniel and Esther together now and ask what we can learn from these two books. They come from the same time, the same exile, two people far from home and yet two people were wonderfully used by God because they got to a high position in pagan society without compromising their principles, but from that position they were able to do something for the Kingdom of God and that encourages you to have a career and to go as far as you can with it and to get a good position in the world. God can use you for the kingdom. Don't just be at the bottom, let God put you somewhere where you can count and where you can do something for his kingdom. Well now what do we say? What do we learn about God? What message is the f- for us from this man and this woman? Three lessons. Number one, God uses individuals. See, it's just one person can make all the difference. God uses men and women and we are all in exile. Don't you ever feel like that? We don't belong here anymore, we don't fit here, we're misfits. Our citizenship is in heaven, we belong somewhere else. When you become a Christian, you're a misfit in this world, in the kingdoms of this world and you feel it even your sense of humour changes and you can't laugh at the same jokes. It's, you're, you're someone else, you're, you belong somewhere else. Our citizenship is up there, says Paul. Uh, but God can use individuals in the kingdoms of this world who keep their principles and remember who they are and who are willing to be promoted but who are not willing to be assimilated because the Jews always have the temptation to be assimilated, to avoid persecution by behaving like everybody else. And I've noticed again and again when the Jews become assimilated, they are persecuted. Anti-Semitism comes up. In Germany, at the beginning of this century, the Jews were so assimilated to German culture and language and customs that when Theodor Herzl called the first Zionist Congress in 1897 to discuss the state of Israel having a country of their own again. The German Jews didn't want to know because he wanted to have it in Munich and the German Jew says, no, don't have it in Munich, we are now Germans. We're not Jews anymore, we're Germans, so don't embarrass us, go to Switzerland. And he held it in Basel. The German Jews of Munich didn't want it because they said we're Germans now. And what happened in Munich? See, it's happened again and again and we must learn from this. Christians have a temptation to assimilate, to avoid problems and to behave like everybody else so that we're not singled out and regarded as odd, weirdos. But God uses the individuals who are willing to be different. We used to sing in Sunday school, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone (laughs) Did you sing that? Well, it means being willing to be different, being willing to have the courage to stand firm, willing to die rather than compromise. And you know, both these people, this man and this woman, Daniel and Esther, were both willing to die rather than compromise their faith in God. Great lesson to learn. Secondly, God preserves his people. God preserves his people. God uses individuals. Second lesson I learned, God preserves his people. He preserved Daniel in the lion's den. He preserved Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He preserved the Jews in Susa through Esther. You see, to wipe out God's people, if ever you want to wipe out God's people, I can tell you easily how to do it. The first thing you must do is to wipe out God. see? So, if ever you want to wipe out God's people, just get rid of God first. And then you can deal with His people. But if you try to wipe out His people without wiping Him out, God preserves His people. And He will preserve us. We may die for Him, but we're still preserved. So, there'll always be an Israel and there'll always be a church. Thirdly, God rules the world. The one word that is common to both the books Daniel and Esther is the word Kingdom, and the Gospel is the Gospel of the Kingdom. That's a key word all the way through the Bible. But for both Daniel and Esther, the Kingdom came first. Who knows but what you have come to the Kingdom for such times time as this? The King's business requires haste. These are texts from Esther that are used freely in the Kingdom of God. The human kingdoms of the present are in God's hands. God raises rulers up and he puts them down. As Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So it's God who redraws the boundaries of the Atlas. It is God who decides who has power and who doesn't. It is God who decides every election. Do you believe that? He has the casting vote in every election. He votes sometimes in justice and sometimes in mercy. If he votes in justice, he gives us the government we deserve. If he votes in mercy, he gives us the government we need. Very important in our situation to plead for his mercy, frankly. But God decides who's Prime Minister. And in my lifetime, God has removed from office six Prime Ministers within a short time of them breaking a promise to Israel. It's too much of a coincidence. From Neville Chamberlain to James Callaghan, it's happened. And you know, a year ago George Bush turned against Israel and withdrew money from them. Somebody told me just a week later he's finished. It's too much of a coincidence. Don't play games with God and the only God there is, is the God of Israel. God rules the world. The human kingdoms of this world need to be told heaven rules you only rule by his permission. He is in charge. And then there's another use of the word kingdom. There are the human kingdoms of the present, but there is the divine kingdom of the future when God takes over world government. That's when they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The kingdoms of this world are going to be replaced by the kingdom of God. That's the teaching. That we've been picking up this afternoon and he will use Daniel and Esther in that day. Do you realise that their jobs haven't finished? They were faithful in government in a pagan empire and they will be raised from the dead. Daniel says it at the end of Daniel 12. Do you realise that when Jesus comes back to earth, Daniel will be with him and Esther And I wonder what position he'll give Daniel in his government. You think about it. We're going to meet these people again. You see, when I read the Bible, I don't read it as history because I'm going to meet these people. I'm going to meet Daniel and Esther. Won't it be interesting, you know, having all eternity to get to know these folk? Instead of saying, could I have two minutes at the end of the meeting, you say, could I just discuss something for the next thousand years with you? And we shall have all eternity to get to know these great saints of God. We shall be reigning with the saints of the Most High, the Son of Man on the throne. And all these people who were proved faithful in days gone by will be used again on this earth to share the government in the Kingdom of Christ. I really believe that and it makes this whole thing much nearer to my heart. I remember a song I used to sing years ago. It's not in many hymn books now. Sing with the King who is coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, life and salvation his empire shall bring. What's the next? Joy to the nations. When Jesus is King, come let us sing, Jesus is King. What a lovely thought. And Daniel and Esther with him and all the other saints who have died, will be raised from the dust and shine as stars, says Daniel, and he'll be one of the biggest stars. The day when all the pop stars, all the film stars are gone, there'll be one bright morning star, that's Jesus, and the righteous will shine like stars forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you're not the God of the dead, you're the God of the living. You are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You are the God of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Esther. They're all alive with you. They're all going to be given new resurrection bodies with us and we thank you for this great cloud of witnesses around us waiting to see how we run our race. And without us, they cannot be made perfect. Thank you that one day all of us together will get our new bodies and be with Jesus. What a meeting that'll be. Now, Lord, may your Spirit of truth take all that we've shared, plant it deep within our spirits so that it changes our characters and makes us more ready for that day when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of glory. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.